As you're making your way to Psalm 37, middle-ish portion of your Bible, feel free to use a table of contents if you need to. I do want to say how grateful I am to be with you this morning gathered around God's Word. This is such a sweet time that we get to experience week after week. And it's a joy for me to be able to bring God's Word to you in this way. And I am looking forward to what the Lord is going to do over the next few moments that we have in his word. So we are going to pray and we're going to ask God for his help and for his favor. And then we're going to look at this psalm together. So join me as we pray one more time. Father, we come to you humbly recognizing our need for grace, our ever-present need for grace. I feel it. Many of us in this room feel it right now. We need your grace. We need your help. We need your spirit to do things that only he can do right now as we look to your word and seek to understand it, seek to honor you, seek to behold Christ in it. God, we ask this morning that you would sanctify us with your truth. Your word is truth. We pray that you would magnify yourself this morning as your word is preached. We pray that you would, from all of us, remove unhelpful distractions, sinful fear of man. We pray that you would remove desires that we have for things that are not of you. And God, we do pray, I pray especially for me this morning that I would decrease and you would increase in all of our eyes. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as many of you may know, I am a school teacher. I teach history and civics at a high school. And one of the skills that I'm constantly trying to help my students learn is to defend their claims. So in other words, I don't want them to just be able to say things, but I want them to be able to defend, justify what they're saying, have reasons for what they're saying. This is an important skill to have in life. It's good to have reasons behind what we say. It's good to be able to answer the, the why question when it comes to what we say. If I have a student say, for instance, we should just do nothing today, which happens all the time. And... If a student says that to me, I'll say, I'll say, why? Now, we're not going to just do nothing, but the answers are never going to be good enough. We're, we're always going to have to do something. I always tell them that I don't get paid to do nothing as much as I might want to give in sometimes. Um, but I ask them why, because I want them to have reasons for what they're saying. Take this example, a breakup. If you're in a relationship and the other person breaks up with you, it's helpful to be given a reason. Breakups are hard and it may not take away all the pain or really any of the pain, but the claim, I'm breaking up with you, is best served with kindness and a little bit of the thinking behind the decision. It's just helpful to have that on the table. And a lot of things that people say sound ridiculous unless they're rooted in compelling reasons, right? You can tell your children to be home by 10 o'clock and you may think that they should just do that because you're telling them to, and maybe you're right, but the command carries more weight if you give reasons behind the 10 o'clock curfew. Your children still may not like it, but at least it'll sound a little bit more reasonable to them. 
Another example, maybe I have a student who I know is really nervous about an upcoming test, and I say, don't be nervous, and I walk away. If I just leave it at that, the student's probably going to roll his eyes and say, what do you mean don't worry, don't be nervous? Uh, it's it's going to be hard, I'm nervous, I'm afraid that I'm going to fail. It, it's going to be much more helpful if I say something like, you don't need to be nervous, and here's why. You always come prepared for your tests. You've studied, you've kept up with things in class, you get to use your notes on the test, and you've taken good notes. You ace the practice test today, and the questions are going to be the exact same on the real test. So don't worry. That kind of answer, it may not take away all the nerves, but it'll help. It'll help that student. It gives more support to what I'm encouraging the student to do. And in a similar way, the Lord, in his abundant kindness, he tells us to think and to say and to do all kinds of things. But he doesn't leave us without reasons. And we see this kindness all over our passage today. As we get ready to read Psalm 37 in a moment, you'll notice how we're told immediately, right off the bat, we're told to not fret, to not worry, to calm down. And the Lord loves us enough to not only tell us not to fret, but he gives us so many reasons behind this good command. He says, don't fret. He says, calm down. And let me tell you why. You have no need to fret. So with all that in mind, follow along as I read Psalm 37. We're going to look at the whole thing. It's 40 verses. But we're going to do it. We're going to trust God to give us stamina and grace as we do. So Psalm 37, a Psalm of David, beginning in verse 1. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, 
they have abundance, but the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. The wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good. So shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. But the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. The law of God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. David writes this psalm in his older years, and it's packed full of wisdom, as I think you see. You might have noticed how much it sounds like the book of Proverbs, and he's writing these words not to God, which he does sometimes, but he's writing these words to other people. In the first few verses here, they set the stage for the overall theme of the psalm. So verse 1 says, fret not yourself because of evildoers. And then verse 3 goes on to say, trust in the Lord and do good. So don't fret and trust the Lord. Or to give you a more formal main point, God won't forsake his people, so trust him and don't fret. God won't forsake his people, so trust him and don't fret. And as we look at this passage, I want to focus your attention on just a few reasons that God's people can trust the Lord when all we see are reasons to fret. The reality is we all have thoughts like this. Things aren't going my way. Things are hard. They seem unfair. We get angry. We get jealous. We doubt God's goodness. We question God's plan. We wonder if God has forgotten us. So 
what I want to do, as I said, is to give you a few reasons, four reasons to trust the Lord rather than fretting. Four reasons to trust the Lord when all you see are reasons not to. And we'll start with reason number one, the grace of God is abundant. The grace of God is abundant. Let me start here with something Charles Spurgeon said about these verses. He says, it is too common for believers in their hours of adversity to think themselves harshly dealt with when they see persons utterly destitute of religion and honesty rejoicing in abundant prosperity. To fret is to worry, to have the heart burn, to fume, to become vexed. Nature is very apt to kindle a fire of jealousy when it sees lawbreakers riding on horses and obedient subjects walking in the mire. He goes on, faith cures fretting. Sight is cross-eyed and views things only as they seem, hence her envy. Faith has clearer optics to behold things as they really are, hence her peace. It can be difficult to see God's grace when life is hard. It can be difficult to see God's grace when others around us seem to be getting more of God's grace. And it can be especially difficult when these people receiving God's grace aren't very good people. To use the language of verse 1, evildoers and wrongdoers. The psalmist goes on to talk about the wicked a lot of times in verses 10 12, 13, 14, 16, 17, 20, 21, 28, 32, 35, 38, and 40. He uses other words along these lines too, such as ruthless in verse 35 and transgressors in verse 38. In verse 20, he uses the phrase, the enemies of the Lord. If you put your eyes back on verse 1, there's a command to fret not because of evildoers, be not envious because of wrongdoers. And that command is a little strange at first. Like, what reason is there to be envious of wrongdoers? You think, well, aren't bad people worse off? Don't their decisions lead to less money, worse health, fewer friends, worse reputations, overall more difficult lives? Of course, we know this isn't true. Verse 8 talks about a man who carries out evil desires and prospers in his way. Verse 14 talks about the wicked being in a position of strength and success, ready to bring down the poor and needy. Wrongdoers do well in this life all the time. People cheat on tests and they get good grades, while honest people can study hard and still fail. People can be consumed with excess or even illegal drinks, drugs, substances, and still live happy and healthy lives. And at the same time, people can take amazing care of their bodies and never consume anything illegally or in excess, and they can get sick and die a younger and maybe even more painful death. People can lie, they can cheat, they can steal their way to riches while honest people can end up not knowing how they're going to pay their rent at the end of the month or not even having a place to lay their head. Happened to the Lord Jesus himself. No place to lay his head. Kind-hearted churchgoers can have incredibly difficult marriages as they seek to live according to God's word while other marriages appear to be a whole lot smoother. Some people are diligent to save themselves for a marriage that may never come. 
while others can happily disobey God only to end up having a lot of fun and a great relationship. The examples are endless. And you may even have specific people in mind right now as we're thinking about these things. It can often feel like the, the unrighteous are winning. They're prospering. They're succeeding. They're thriving. And on the flip side, it can feel like God's people are losing. <laughs> like we're suffering. We're failing. We're getting the short end of the stick and we're barely hanging on. And in light of this reality, God somehow tells us to not fret. Don't worry about it. Don't be envious. Calm down. In verse 8, he says to refrain from anger and forsake wrath. He says in verse 27 to turn away from evil and do good. Even though circumstances might, might tempt you to choose unrighteousness, God says don't do it. Don't do it. Verse 34, don't disobey God, but instead wait for him and keep his way. And God tells us these things. Don't fret, don't be jealous, don't get angry in part because he is rich in grace. And of course, the unrighteous wrongdoer can have abundance too, right? We've thought about that. We've read in the verses. Verse 11 says, The meek shall inherit the earth, inherit the land, and delight themselves in abundant peace. One more verse here, 16. Better is the little, better is the little, that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. The, the wicked can have abundance. We've seen that. But no matter how much they have, whatever God's people have is better. It's quality versus quantity, right? It's not about how much you have, but about what you have. It's like faith. A little faith in Jesus, faith the size of a mustard seed, is infinitely better than having the most faith in the wrong thing. It's quality is what we're talking about here. On a basic level, think of it like this. If you're shopping at Walmart down the road, five American dollars is going to be worth a whole lot more than 5,000 euros. Right? You might be richer with 5,000 euros, but it's not going to get you a whole lot at Walmart. They're not going to take that kind of money. So how can we say that the little that we have is better than all that the wicked have? Proverbs 11.4 speaks to this. This is so good, so helpful. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. God's grace to his people is abundant because he gives us righteousness. And righteousness is what delivers from death. That's grace that God's people receive. That's quality. So, so why shouldn't we fret when we see the wicked prosper? Why shouldn't we worry and get jealous and get angry? It's because God's grace is abundant and it's amazing. It, it saved wretches like you and me. We were once lost, but now we're found. We were once blind, but now we see. Who cares if we prosper in this life and get everything this world has to offer, and at the end of it all, we die in our sins? The righteousness of God is worth far more, infinitely more, than anything that this world has to offer. And on top of that, what, when we really stop and consider all that God has given us, this grace is, is even more abundant than we may realize. My, my wife and I, we recently started a Google Doc 
simply titled, What We're Thankful For. And then it has ver, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. It says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And it's on a Google Doc, so it's a live document. We can pull it up on our computer, on our phone, anywhere we are, and start editing. And so whenever we think to, we open up this document, and we add to it. We add serious things, silly things, sentimental things, all gifts of grace from the Lord. I think our list is up to about 160 now, and we've only scratched the surface of how gracious God has been to us. So when you are tempted as I am, as we all are, to fret and to become envious and to become mad at life and at God. Remember grace, brothers and sisters. Remember how good the Lord has been to you. Remember the favor that he shows to sinners like you and like me. That takes us to reason number two to trust the Lord and to not fret. Number two, the justice of God is perfect. The justice of God is perfect. So how is it that the holy and righteous God that we know, that we read about, that we sing to, can show favor to sinners like you and me? All these words that we looked at earlier, wrongdoers, evildoers, the wicked, ruthless, transgressors, these words, simply put, they describe all people. Verse 9, enemies of the Lord. Is there anything worse that we could be called? Is there anything worse that someone could be called an enemy of the Lord? Listen to verses, to, to Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. And I want you to rejoice in the good news, but also pay attention to how we're described in those verses. Paul writes, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Weak, ungodly, sinners. That's us. And this psalm by itself, not to mention the entire Bible, it, it paints a very bleak picture of what life ultimately looks like for sinners, for God's enemies. God is, God is holy, right? He's sinless. He is, he is without error and without equal. We are sinful. And look at what this psalm says will happen to sinners because of their sin, because of our sin. Verse 2, they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Verse 9, the evildoers shall be cut off. Cut off from God, cut off from the blessing of God. Cast away from him. Verse 10, the wicked will be no more. We keep going, verses 14, 15, the wicked draw their sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. It sounds like they're winning. It sounds like they're doing pretty well, but then verse 15 continues, their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. They think they're winning in their wrongdoing and in their sin. And yet it's those very things that will cause them to fail and to fall and to ultimately perish. Verse 17, the arms of the wicked shall be broken. 
Verse 20, the wicked will perish, the enemies of the Lord vanish like smoke. There are others in this passage, but one more here. Verse 38, transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. Is there a worse fate? Cut off from the Lord forever. Away from his presence, away from his goodness, away from his salvation forever. God is righteous in all his ways, and he punishes sin. And you and I are sinners. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2, looking at Paul's words again, verses 1 through 3. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. According to the Bible, we have all done wrong. We heard it at the very beginning of this service. We have all broken God's law. We've never really kept any one of his commands. And if justice is served, then we are condemned. We're destroyed. We're cut off from God. We have no hope and we will die an eternal death in our sin. And so in light of that reality, the justice of God seems like a pretty good reason to fret. Seems like a pretty good reason to keep us up at night. It's kept people up at night throughout history. Church fathers have been kept up night after night after night. Some of you have been kept up night after night after night, fretting because God is holy and you are not holy and you can't atone for your own sin. We're, we're going to stand before this good judge, guilty of sin. We know the punishment that awaits us and we're supposed to calm down and be good with that and not fret. If justice is served, it seems like we will not be saved unless, unless our punishment is taken by another. And this is exactly what the Lord Jesus has done for you. By his grace, Christ has lived a perfect life. He's died a sacrificial death and he's risen a victorious resurrection in the place of sinners, in your place, in my place. And he did this, brothers and sisters, because he loves you. <laughs> because he loves you. We looked at Ephesians 2 earlier. Let's look there again, picking up at verses 4 and reading to verse 7. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love, the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He raised us up with him. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's the love of God for sinners trusting in Jesus. So how can we trust the Lord and not fret? Because, saints, Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive, and when we put our faith in him, we are alive with him. In Christ, we're not seen as evildoers anymore. In Christ, we're not seen as wicked. We're not seen as lawbreakers. In Christ, we are not guilty anymore. No, by grace, the judge is now our loving father who sees us as he sees his son, holy and blameless. 
Our sin is punished, justice is served, and we are forgiven. The punishment is either taken by us as we're cut off from God, or it's taken by Jesus on the cross as he drinks the cup of wrath. You either suffer for your sin, or you trust in Christ who suffered in your place for your sin. If you have, if you refuse to turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus, if that's you this morning, you're refusing to trust, you are, you are leaning into your own sin, then you have much reason to fret. But if you're trusting in Christ alone to save you from your sin, if you're trusting him to be your righteousness, hear this, you have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. Rather than running from God's justice, you rejoice in it. You see it as good. Rather than dreading God as your judge, you delight in him as your father. And that's why it's good news that God's justice is perfect because the wicked won't prosper forever and because Christ took our sin, we are free, we're forgiven, and we're reconciled to him forevermore. Reason number three, the hand of God is steady. The hand of God is steady. So not only is God our gracious father, but he's also our loving guide. This is encouraging this morning. He governs our lives and that is good news. We're in good hands. It, it may seem like we're struggling and we're suffering while others are doing just fine, but God, hear this, God knows what he's doing. He hasn't lost control of the wheel. He's not steering us in the wrong direction. Look at verse 17. The arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The difference there is dependence. It's dependence. The wicked are trying to hold themselves up and they're trying to be independent. They're trying to trust in themselves. Be the captain of their own ship, right? The pilot of their own plane. The righteous, those of us who are trusting in Christ, that's where our righteousness comes from. It's not ours. It's the righteousness of Christ. So those of us who are trusting in Christ, we are upheld by his hand. We are dependent on him. We're preserved by his hand, not ours. His wisdom, not ours. His providence, not ours. This verse has echoes of Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10. Fear not, God says, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Isn't that encouraging? When we're afraid, God is with us. When we're weak, he gives us his strength. When we're needy, God will help us. And no matter what happens in this life, we're secure. You're secure in him. This psalm is saying that if you're seeking to live independently of God and in hostility to God, your arms will be broken. This means ultimately your sin will find you out and you will be brought to nothing. But if you're being held in the loving arms of God, his arms will never be broken. He will never drop you and you will be safe. You will be held forever. And I realize that you may be here this morning feeling like God's hands is not the best place to be for you. You may feel like God has not been all that good to you. We can all think of times when God seems to be looking out for other people, even worse people, 
And the loving hands of God are tossing you into fire after fire after fire. Others are prospering and you're in pain. The wicked are plotting against you and they seem to be winning. We feel this sometimes. But brothers and sisters, we have to remember that what we see and what we feel are not always reality. Uh, think of it like this. Silly example, when I was a kid, I had some family members who owned a trampoline. Trampolines are fun. At least I, th I thought they looked fun. I didn't know from experience, though, because my dad wouldn't allow me or my siblings to jump on it when we visited my family members. And I didn't like this rule. I, I obeyed it because I was a good kid, but I wish things were different. I didn't see what the big deal was, and even more than that, I thought I was missing out on this fun thing. My dad, the fun sucker, was preventing me from this fun experience. Other people got to fly through the air. They got to jump real high, do flips and turns. And I was stuck on the ground. And the ground's boring. It doesn't bounce. It doesn't lift you in the air. I was a good kid, obedient to my dad, and he was holding out on me. <laughs> but the reason that my dad was holding out on me was though I couldn't see it, because he loved me. He knew the trampoline, the way that it was open, there was no netting, it was slanted, probably wasn't the most secure thing, knowing some of my family members. He knew that it could be dangerous. I think death trap was the word that he used. He knew that I would probably hurt myself, and he was right, I can be a little clumsy and reckless. And even as I was having trampoline flashbacks, Thinking of the unfairness and the love of God and the love of my, my dad and all these things. I thought of verse 17. The arms of the wicked shall be broken. And, and I'm not calling my family members wicked, but my dad was saying, he's saying, listen, son, they might be having some fun, but that thing is going to break them. They're going to break their heads on that thing. And I'm not going to let you break yourself on this thing. I'm not going to let you break your arms. And my dad was kind of like, you're missing out on this thing. I know that, but... But I am for you. This is for your good. And there are other examples, right? Like all your friends have a phone or have Netflix or have TikTok, but you're not allowed. You feel like you're on the outside looking in. But for those who love us, we can trust them. We can trust their guidance. We can trust their direction. We trust that they know what they're doing. We see their track record. We know who they are and we can trust them. Their loving hands, whoever that is in your life, speaking into your life, their, their loving hands are, are, they're giving and they're also withholding for your good. And this is the love of God for his people. Along those lines, quickly, I want us to look at verse four in particular. David writes, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Some of you might have written off this psalm as soon as we got to verse 4. You read that and you thought, that could not be any less true in my life. You think, I love God, I go to church, I'm here this morning, I read my Bible, I pray, I'm seeking to follow the Lord, and yet so many of my desires remain unfilled, unfulfilled. You desire marriage, but God hasn't given it to you. You desire a better marriage, but things are only getting worse. You desire a certain job, but you can't get a call back. 
You desire to live in a certain place, but God has you somewhere else. You desire a better health report, but things seem to be more and more hopeless by the day. You desire for someone that you love to be with you next to you this morning, and they refuse to come, and you're here by yourself. You desire for your children to walk with the Lord, but they're showing little interest in the things of God. So what does this verse mean? In short, it means what it says. It doesn't simply say that we'll get what we want, right? The promise of God giving us the desires of our heart is rooted in the command to delight ourselves in the Lord. And as we delight in the Lord, our desires become his desires. As we delight in the Lord, our hearts slowly, imperfectly begin to desire better things, the right things. The more we delight in God and in his word and his people, the more we, we can trust God to shape our desires to be like his. So, so for instance, suffering... Suffering will come. None of us truly desire to suffer. And suffering is going to come. But our desire, hopefully, by God's grace, starts to become suffering well when it happens. The, we desire not to suffer, but even a greater desire is to suffer well and to exalt Christ as we do it. And to be, to be refined in the fire. We... We may not have the job we want or live where we want or the health that we want, but our desire becomes increasingly to honor the Lord and to make disciples where we are. God may or may not give us the spouse that we want, but he helps us desire to use our singleness to secure an undivided devotion to the Lord. So, so as we delight in the Lord, verse 16 makes more sense. Better is the little that the righteous has makes more sense as we delight in the Lord. Verse 31 makes more sense. The law of his God is in his heart. His, his steps do not slip. God wants us to delight in him and in his word and in his law. And as we do these things, God gives us the good desires of our heart. Our desires to follow Jesus and to be with him. And good news, brothers and sisters, ultimately we will be with him. He will meet that desire. And this is our final reason here. There are a lot more. I think I said this. There are a lot more than four reasons, but we're going to go with four today. Four reasons to trust the Lord. And this is our final reason to trust God and not fret. The presence of God is home. The presence of God is home. Look down at verse 13. It says, The, the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. Can you imagine how awful that would be? Being laughed at doesn't feel good. And to be laughed at by God himself? But the wicked are full of pride. They think they're in control. They think they're the kings and the queens. They think they're living how they want to live and that they're getting away with it. So they're laughing. But hear this. They will be judged for their sins. The wicked will not have the last laugh. But for those of us trusting in Jesus, God doesn't laugh at us. No, he, he loves us. He celebrates us. He may even laugh with us 
as we rejoice together. God delights in knowing that we'll be with him forever. We see references to the land over and over in this psalm. Verse 3, dwell in the land. Verse 9, those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Verse 11, the meek shall inherit the land. Beatitudes, right? Matthew 5, same language. There are several instances where the land is talked about, but just one more here. Verse 29, the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. Remember, we are, we are righteous in Christ. We're righteous in Christ, and the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The land that's talked about is the land to come, the promised land to come, and Jesus secured our place in it. We get to be there. We get to be in the land with God, the promised land. The promised Son of God came to give us access to the promised land of God. And brothers and sisters, this promised land is glorious, and what makes it glorious is the presence of God himself. We will live in glorious contentment and endless delight with God forever because of what Jesus has done. Listen to Revelation 21. This will be familiar to a lot of you. Verse 4, I heard a loud voice from the throne. John is speaking this vision from the Lord. He says, I heard this loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Let's try and wrap your mind around that. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And, and what is, what's that going to look like when we're dwelling with God? John tells us, he will wipe away every tear from their eye. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. God, when we are in his presence as his people, he will be nothing but kind to us. In Christ, our future is incredibly bright because we will live with God. Let me tell you what this means, among other things. It means no more heartache, no more sadness, no more unfulfilled desires, in this land, there's no more jealousy, no more moves, no more job frustrations, no more arguments, no more suffering, no more sin, no more pride, no more waiting on the Lord, no more walking by faith because our faith will be sight. There will be only gladness in God forever. And as we delight in the Lord, both in this life and forever, be encouraged that God himself is right now delighting in you. We sang about it earlier. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. God will rejoice over you with gladness. We delight in God and he delights in us. Psalm 147 verse 11, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. It doesn't say the Lord is mad at his people or tolerates his people. No, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Because of Christ, God delights in you. Believe that this morning. God is for you. God loves you in Christ. You are greatly loved by him. 
And John 17 says that the Father loves us like he loves Jesus. This is what Jesus prayed for in his high priestly prayer. So, so we are loved in the same way that God loves Jesus, that Father loves the Son. Praise God for our union with Christ. Verse 33 here in our psalm says that the Lord won't abandon us, and when we're on trial, the Lord won't condemn us. And if you're still wondering if, you, if a future with God is worth it, just look at how this psalm ends. Verses 39 and 40. They say the Lord is our salvation and our righteousness. He's our stronghold. He's our help. He is our deliverance and he's our refuge. An old hymn says it this way. I think we sang it maybe a couple weeks ago here. Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast and our eternal home. God is faithful and so let's trust in him and do good in him. Let's live like we will be with him forever because brothers and sisters we will be and it will be all of grace and it will be glorious amen amen would you pray with me